Our scripture reading this morning comes from 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 5 through 11. What, after all, is Apollos, and what is Paul, only servants through whom you come to believe, as the Lord has assigned to each its task? I planted the seeds, Apollos watered it, but God made it grow. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who makes things grow. The man who plants and the man who waters have one purpose, and each will be rewarded according to his own labor, for we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's buildings. By the grace God has given me, I laid a foundation as an expert builder, and someone else is building on it. But each one should be careful how he builds, for no one can lay any foundation other than the one already laid, which is Jesus Christ. Pray with me. Father God, we are your church, and you are our master. Pray that you would be at work shaping and forming us to more and more reflect your glory and give you honor. Even though we're sinful people, work through us and in our midst. We pray all of this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. So this is a different sermon, which is why I decided to have a chair, at least for the first part of it, and a really hard discussion in a lot of ways, but I concluded a long time ago that the best way to approach hard things is head first, so we're just gonna dive into this. So back in December, I was first contacted like a month and a half after Elizabeth passed by a friend of mine back in Nebraska um, telling me about a church that was entering into a pastoral search back there near family. And my first reaction to that was, oh crap, basically, just speaking very honestly because I did not really want to think about that at all because we weren't really looking in any way for uh, that kind of opportunity and because that being said, I also knew that if this was, if the Lord was going to call me to do something like this, given the timing and circumstances, it was definitely the sort of thing that I needed to pay attention to. So we walked into that process and we'll talk more about that in a couple minutes, but we've been working through that and the elders here at Kish have known about that for a while and have been praying and speaking into that process for me, but uh, just um, cutting, cutting to the chase of that after a lot of wrestling, I am going to be taking a pastoral call back in Nebraska, and we are making that public here this Sunday. Now hold on a minute, if you will. I know that's big and hard news, and in fact, I'm mindful that a lot of preachers seem to do this thing where when they have that kind of announcement to make, they wait until like the last three minutes of the sermon to say it, which I think is really bogus. But look, in just a minute, let's enter into the emotions of that together. But first, I want to just give two practical pieces of information about that, because I think it's important to shape your thinking as I've talked to some of you about it. But one is that while we are going to be transitioning back to Nebraska, me and the kids, because we want to serve Kish well and honor Jesus in this process, that is going to be happening later in the summer, probably end of July, beginning of August, because there's a lot of things over the next four months or so as we 
are restarting different programs and seeking to yeah, come out of COVID and engage well. There's a lot of things that need to be happening. This, this next season is really important for us as a church. And so I'm going to be here for that process. And let me just say about that, there's the school of thought that says basically you shouldn't tell people the news at that point. You should wait till the last minute to tell them. But I don't buy that because we're a family as a church and we should be open with each other and I want to be open about that. But understand that this is not a thing that's happening tomorrow. And then the second very practical thing to understand about it is because of that, the process of finding a new pastor here at Kish to replace me is also going to look quite a bit different than it did the last couple of times it happened at Kish. I know some of you have been new here in the last five years that I've been here, but for those of you that are older, I think you probably have in your mind this thing where there was these kind of sudden departures, or maybe even not that sudden, but everything was slow getting moving, and you'd have these like two-year-long periods where maybe you'd have an interim pastor for part of that, and you'd just have these long stretches of uncertainty. And there's some amount of uncertainty that's unavoidable in this process. But my hope and the hope of the elders is that this transition period coming up is going to look a lot different from those past transitions. We are planning, aiming by the end of April to have a pastoral search committee up and running. And by the time I would leave, they would hopefully be talking to candidates. It's ultimately up to the Lord how that timing works. But also just know practically that this is probably going to feel like and look like a shorter and less uncertain transition than it has in the past. With those practical things out of the way, let's talk about that reality and in some ways about the emotions of that reality. And I want to just say a few things before we um, eventually we're going to look at this text we read for a few minutes, but I want to say a couple of things. And first of all, and I just want to say this over and over in this process, I deeply love you all and love Kish, and you have loved me and the kids well and loved Elizabeth well before she died, and I have been deeply torn throughout this process. It's a bittersweet decision that we've made. One of the th crazy things to me, as I think about the last five years, is how much of it was characterized by deep brokenness in my own life. Elizabeth was first diagnosed with cancer one month before we were scheduled to move out here. We'd already accepted the call. I remember calling Pat Bastian, who was my contact person back then here at Kish, and just telling her what was going on and asking if, you know, if you still wanted us and, um, and from the start, as we moved out here in the midst of that, you cared for us, for my family, well. Practically, you did it. I mean, a dozen folks from Kish showed up. I remember I moved here two weeks before Elizabeth because we were going to finish the guest room in the basement. And they ended up helping completely finish half of the basement with me. And for, for years, there's been meals and childcare. I think about those of you who have... Um, who have sent, who sent Elizabeth these encouraging notes and really cared for her. I think about the, the two ladies who I won't name who basically every week for five years have come and cleaned our house for us. I'm deeply grateful for all of that practical love and support and also for the deeper relational love that you showed us. In particular, I was and am so moved 
by the love that you showed Elizabeth, even as we faced her death, even as it drew near the fact that so many of you didn't pull back from her, but were willing to enter a relationship with her. And I know many of you feel so blessed by that, but I'm just grateful for that and the love that you show me and the kids. Basically, I'm just trying to say thank you for that. Thank you. And in addition, I also want to say that I'm deeply encouraged by the growth that many of you have experienced spiritually in the last five years and the good, sweet ministry and life as a church that we've had together. Kish has had challenges, and it's in a very challenging place in terms of the communities that it's a part of. I think we're probably going to actually talk about this at some point in the next four months, but um, one of the often unnamed realities of, of our condition is that both Rockford and our communities connected to Rockford have been struggling deeply over the last decade or so, and that's really shaped a lot of our experiences in these places. But, but I have loved the work of ministry here over the last five years and have been so encouraged by so many of you and seeing you connect with Jesus in different ways. And I really am hopeful. In fact, part of why this has been so bittersweet for me is I'm really hopeful about the next season for Kish as we kind of move out of the more locked down COVID time and think about re-engaging in different ways. In fact, if I can just name something, part of why I feel like I want to communicate that to you is that there is, um, and look, this is, this is maybe especially awkward to name, but I'm just kind of embracing the awkwardness this morning. This decision is not at all based on ministry challenges or on you guys as a church. I know there's this temptation for pastors to try to spiritualize the process of seeking God's calling when really it's probably for some of them just about pro professional advancement. They're in kind of categorizing you know, these are the really attractive, sexy churches, and these are less so, and that's that's all deeply messed up. And so I just want to, as clearly as I can, say to you that um, Kish is a beautiful church. You love Jesus well, uh, in, in so many ways, is a very like lively and just good place where the Lord has been at work. Um, and I'm not leaving you guys for greener pastures. I mean, I'm sure you're not supposed to, but look, I'm going to a church that's smaller in terms of weekly attendance and where I'm not making more money than I do here. And it's a sweet group of believers too, and I'm really excited about the next season there. It's always hard in a sermon like this one to know how to talk about those things. But seeking God's direction is not the same thing as seeking some kind of professional advancement or something. And so I just want you to know that you guys are a beautiful part of Jesus's body. And it's hard for me to think about leaving. But after a lot of prayer and fasting and wrestling, that's the decision that we reached. And so let me talk through then just trying to be open about why we did end up making that decision. And there's really a couple of things, first of all, that I had to recognize throughout the process. One is that from the start, really there was no question of this from the beginning, I knew that being back by family would be a huge blessing for my kids. I mean, we're doing okay in the world of single parenting and grieving, and many of you are very kind to them, but there is no substitute for having family nearby, especially in a hard season like the one that this is going to continue to be for them. And we'd be moving to a place where we would be within 45 minutes of Elizabeth's parents and my parents, 
and both of their aunts and their cousins, and that would just be a huge blessing. Now, here's the thing about that. When you think about pastors, as a pastor, when you think about ministry in your family, I feel like there's two errors you can make. One is, and this is often a named error, one is that you can sacrifice your family on the altar of ministry, and that's deeply destructive and wicked. But it is also true that there's an error that thinks that you won't be asked to make sacrifices as a family. There are ways that you have to do hard things as you're called into ministry for Jesus that all of us do. And so neither sacrificing your family nor ensuring their comfort and whatever is easiest for them is always what you're called to do. There's this tension between them. But that was a factor, recognizing that with my kids. And then the second factor is that I have increasingly had to admit that there are ways that it would be good for me to be back in that place as well. And I don't mean good selfishly, I mean good in terms of my own weakness and my own health, spiritually and emotionally. And in some ways that's a hard thing for me to admit. I'm a pretty high capacity person. I am a, you know, when challenges come, you put down your head and you just barrel into them and take care of business guy. And I don't spend a lot of time reflecting on whether I can do things. I just kind of jump in and try to do them. And sometimes that is good, and sometimes that's not healthy. And over the years, I've been trying to learn to be more honest about costs and weaknesses in my own health. And people in this season of grief with Elizabeth's death ask me all the time how I'm doing, how I'm holding up. And the answer I always give is something like, all right, considering. And that's true. I am doing all right. This is not a season where you do awesome, but, you know, the Lord has been faithful. He's sustaining us. And so considering the context of missing my wife and going through the pain of losing her and all of that, we've been doing all right. And God, again, he has been so good to us to give us strength and we're not falling apart or something. But... Being a single parent is hard, and grieving is hard, and there is a real loneliness that I've had to navigate. And being close to family for support and being close to some very old friends in Nebraska for support would be a huge good thing for me as well. I've had to kind of admit to myself that I am doing all right, and God has been faithful, but it's also true that it is lonely and hard in a way that when I think about a year from now, right, two years from now, I recognize that I need to admit in some ways my own weakness. And look, again, that doesn't settle it either because God calls us to do hard things and there are times that we have to do things that are going to tax us or stretch us, but that's another major factor that I felt like had to be weighed. And then three, I've also been processing my own sense of calling and kish and giftings and things. And this is the part that I want to be really careful to try to articulate because it's the easiest maybe to misunderstand. So, so try to hear and ask questions after the service or whatever. Reach out to me if you want to. But on the one hand, if you're called to pastoral ministry, you can do ministry anywhere. It's not some, I mean, at the end of the day, ministry means preaching God's truth from his word to people and praying for people and administering the sacraments and sitting with and being with them when they're 
sick or struggling and loving the people, helping people discern God's will, all of those things, if you are gifted and called to ministry, you can do in any place. And I, I want to start by saying that because that's the big picture truth. But there's also a level on which you recognize that you have certain gifts and strengths as a pastor, certain things that you're really good at and things that you're not as good at. And those things do not determine whether you do ministry in a place, but they are a factor that you weigh. And as I've spent a lot of time reflecting, here's something that I've come to realize, which is that I think that some of my strengths were on display in significant ways when we first came to Kish. I think some of my strengths were, were really good for the sudden crisis when COVID hit and we had to make all these pivots and changes. And in some ways, they're in play too right now as we think about relaunching things and re-engaging with different things. But when I think about the season after that, I actually think there are some other gifts and some other areas of strength that I am not as strong at that would be real blessings for Kish. And I know in saying that, I don't mean that to be cryptic or something, and I'd be happy, like I said, to talk more about it. And that, again, it's not decisive in itself, but realizing that did give me a real sense of just being able to say that I need to be open to the possibility, which in my pride, maybe I don't like to admit, but I need to be open to the possibility that there is someone who is better equipped than me in terms of those gifts and strengths for the next season of Kish's life and for the, the years that lie ahead of us. So again, all of those things I came to recognize and process. And then maybe just to spell this out, here's how I think you seek God's will in a decision like that. What you do is you reflect and gather information and process those things. And you take that and you take your feelings and your heart and you bring them before God. And you enter into a season where you, in prayer and fasting, present them before God and say, here's where my heart is at. Here's the different things I'm wrestling with. And you invite people to speak into that. And so I did that in the last few weeks. Um, I've been doing that in a very specific way. And then coming out of that, you decide and you trust that that is God's will. And so that is the decision that ultimately I feel like God has led me to. Then if I can share a couple of thoughts with you all. First, a couple of practical thoughts. And then I do want to spend a few minutes looking at this passage that we read from 1 Corinthians. First practical thought is that it is appropriate when, when you hear a sermon like this one, when we look at that set of decisions, it's appropriate for you to grieve. I think there's some part of every pastor that wants to figure out a way to tell you, like, don't feel sad because it's hard for me for you to grieve, but that's not appropriate. It's, it's right. Uh, to, to feel sad, and some, and I feel sad deeply as I've processed through that decision. I would be happy, as I've said, to visit with you about it if you want. Even with COVID, just let me know, and whether it's on the phone or in person, I'm happy to answer questions about that decision or just be with you as you grieve that. And in that context of grief, I'd also ask you, if you'd be willing to, um, my kids are grieving as well as me. They're excited at the same time but they're grieving, some more than others. And I would really appreciate your care for them as they go through that and as you grieve with us. Second practical thought. The next few weeks with Easter and then the pivot to in-person services, for a lot of us, are actually going to provide some space. And that's part of why I think the timing of this now is good for us to think about some of that stuff. 
But coming out of that, as I kind of mentioned earlier, there's a lot of important work for us to do as a church. We're going to be doing some exciting things and restarting women's and men's ministry and getting ready to relaunch a whole new way of doing small groups that we're going to be launching end of the summer. And, uh, and we're going to be forming a search committee and there's other smaller things that are happening. And one of the things that I've tried to remind us of a lot in my ministry is that we are the church. We are together. We're each a minister of Christ. We are together the church. And this is a season where we're really going to have to especially embody that. I think it's easy to be lethargic or to let the inertia of COVID and the way a lot of us have been at home a lot more, watching Netflix a lot more, but to let that kind of drag us down. And we really are going to be in a time over the next few months where all of us need to be thinking about our giftings and where Jesus is calling us to engage. And I just want to name that I know in some ways that's harder because of the announcement that I've just made, but please don't let that be an excuse to hit the pause button. In fact, quite the opposite. What my hope is, is that you'll recognize that, man, I am all in over the next few months as we try to make those changes. And I pray that you would just be all in in this next season too. So that's two practical thoughts. And then one last practical request, I guess, if I can make it. I would really appreciate your prayers and support for me and my kids in the next few months. Elizabeth died five months ago, and the months before that were really hard as she entered into that final season of dying. And COVID has been happening. We have been through a lot in the last year. And I know that long-term, being back by family and in that place is better for the kids and probably for me. But in the short term, the next few months of our lives are just going to be completely brutal and insane. And I would really appreciate your prayers for us as we try to navigate that. And then one last note, I'm going to say this again, I've said it in different ways, but both I and our elders who have been aware and a part of this process for a while would be happy to talk with you about, about the thinking about the next, what comes next. And so please feel free to do that. So that's a lot to process. That's a lot of hard things. But that said, as we finish up here, I want to shift a little bit into a little bit more of a preacher mode. And still in light of that comment, that coming season, I just want us to reflect a little bit on the scripture reading that we heard from 1 Corinthians 3. And first, a little context. So the church in Corinth, the Apostle Paul is writing to, this is one of his earliest letters, and the church in Corinth has a lot of problems, like a lot of them. But one of their big problems is that there's these deep divisions in the church, this sort of partisan spirit they have in terms of different teachers that they follow, like Paul or Peter or Apollos. And so Paul addresses that division, and he really does it in a couple of different ways. First, he emphasizes Jesus and our unity in Jesus, but here he comes at it from another angle. Start reading in verse 5. What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed, as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. What are Paul and Apollos as leaders of the church? Well, first, they're servants. That runs through all of Paul's thinking about Christian leadership. 
When you're a leader, you do not lead. You do not exist to serve yourself, to fulfill yourself, to make your name great. You are a servant, first of Jesus, and then because of that, you're a servant of the church as a whole. And if I can just say this, this isn't really the point that I want us to to focus on here, but it weighs on my heart, especially as in the next few months, some of you guys will be processing that search for a new pastor and things like that. And there's a lot that can be said about that. And one of the things I'm hopeful for as we have this time to plan and work is that I'll be able to maybe meet, meet some with you, those of you that are engaged in that process and give you some practical advice. But, but if I could give you the most important question, I think, beyond like, is this person a Christian? Do they love Jesus? The most important question you can ask any pastor is this. It's, do you see yourself as a servant of Jesus and his church? Or are you trying to make those things serve you instead? Are you laboring to decrease as you make much of Jesus and his church? Or are you seeking to use them to raise yourself up? Are you, are you pouring yourself out for the church? Or are you trying to have it pour into you to puff you up? All of us are imperfect in our call to serve Jesus in the church. I am imperfect in that. But the most important truth that anyone who leads in Jesus' church can understand is that they are called to be a servant. But that said, Paul says they're servants through whom you believed as the Lord assigned to each of you. So Paul and Apollos preached, and through their ministry, the Corinthians did come to believe in Jesus. But notice it says, through, not by. They did not come to believe by the ministry of Paul or Apollos. No, they came to believe by the power of God that accomplished it. He chose who to give faith to and how and how to bless them and whether he would move. And Paul and Apollos were just vehicles through whom God worked. In many ways, that's exactly what we talked about last week in the Gospel of Luke, that God's mission depends on God, not us. He works through us, but he's the one who always ultimately brings success. God's work, building up the church, depends on God. And therefore, as Paul goes on to say, one pastor might plant, one pastor might water, but it is always only God who causes the church to grow. God is the one who matters. Here's where I want that to meet us this morning. On the one hand, the work of a pastor is important. It's important to the church. God sees it as important, and a faithful pastor can be used by God in good and beautiful ways, and an unfaithful pastor can cause tremendous damage. But both pastors and congregations can also start to treat the pastor as more important than he is. In the first place, it's always up to us together whether the church is going to be what Jesus calls it to be. A pastor can encourage and teach and nudge and challenge, but the church is ultimately going to determine its own direction. I spent a summer herding cattle as a young man, and one of the realizations you have when you're working with cattle, especially when you're not very good at it like me, is that there are ways that you can kind of steer them, but also at the end of the day, they're going to go where they want to go. And while you all are not cattle, the truth is that the church is going to choose together by each of us choosing and encouraging each other to choose what we're going to be. But then on a deeper level, it's always ultimately God, not the pastor, who builds up and steers his church by his power 
and his word. Whatever success, whatever good things I've seen in ministry, it is because God has chosen to bless it. Whatever any, whatever growth any of us might have had in our personal lives, it is because God through the Holy Spirit grew us. God works through us, but he's the one who does the work. Which means that even when we face something like a pastor leaving, we can have real comfort knowing that God is still just as much at work. Jesus is the chief shepherd of this church, and the chief shepherd never takes a day off and never transitions in or out. The chief shepherd is always watching over his sheep, even as under-shepherds come and go. Keep reading from 1 Corinthians 3, verse 8. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. For we are God's fellow workers, you are God's field, God's building. That's meant to be an assurance to the Corinthians that God does build up his church and that he will, that you are his, his field, his building, meaning you are God's possession. He values you. I'm a workman hired to serve God, but he is the one who owns Kish. He is the one who owns his church, and he is the one who will cause it to grow and reap the harvest. And then verse 10, according to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation, and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Paul's ultimate concern there is to point the Corinthians back to Jesus, away from him, away from Apollos, back to Jesus. I would never pretend to be some skilled master builder the way Paul treats himself, but the thing that I ultimately pray that you have heard in the last five years over and over and over and over for the next four months before we leave is Jesus. Jesus is the foundation, the only foundation on which the true church stands. If it's built on something that isn't Jesus, it isn't the church, and there isn't any way to lay any foundation other than Jesus Christ for his church. First, I want to say out of that, as clearly as I can, that that means that the church does not exist for us. It does not exist to provide us with relationships or community. It does not exist to give us spiritual support or an uplifting experience on Sunday morning. It doesn't exist to give our kids moral instruction or to provide care and social services for those in need. The church does not exist for us to use our gifts or for us to find our identity. All of those are fine and good things that can happen in the church and that should happen if the church is healthy. But the church exists for Jesus. Each of us exists for him. And as he is making a bride by joining us together into the church, every choice we make, every breath we take, our life together, at root it is for Jesus Christ. And that can be true. We can exist for Jesus because Jesus is the foundation on which our existence rests. Because Jesus is the one who bought and keeps us. Jesus is the one who loves us and paid his blood for us. That is the foundation on which we stand, that Jesus, the Son of God, came and gave himself for us so that now we are his and live for him. 
that Jesus, the Son of God, came to us and gave himself for us, and so now we are his and give ourselves for him. My prayer for myself, as I think about the coming season in our life, is ultimately that. My desire is to exist for Jesus, to serve him wherever he calls me, rejoicing in his grace and love for me. And that is my prayer for Kish, for all of you, as you navigate the grief and uncertainty and hope and possibility of this next year, that you exist to serve Jesus, rejoicing in his grace and love for you. May that be the purpose and foundation of our lives together as Jesus' church. Let's pray. Father, you build up your church. You keep your church. I am a workman. For a season, stewards one small part of it. But you are the savior and owner of your church. You gave your son to be its bridegroom. You gave his life to save it. By your spirit, you sanctify and purify it. You build it up into a temple in which you will dwell. Father, this is your church. In the world, Kish, here is your church. Bless and build up your church, Father. Guide me and guide them in the season to come. Be with them as they process, as some of them grieve. Be with me as I continue to grieve and seek to pursue your calling on my life. Pray all of this in the name of Jesus Christ, the head pastor, the chief shepherd of the church. Amen.